welcome back to the Anglo-Boer War podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This week, General De Vett, who has been largely dormant for most of November, awakens and begins to leer in the direction of the Cape once more, while Sarah Raal continues to ride with Commandant Nevoet and her three brothers, but for how long? The presence of a woman fighting alongside the burghers in Nevoet's commando has become something of a problem for him. He's worried that she'll be killed, and while Sarah simultaneously is creating propaganda for the Boers in her skirts and matching Lee Metford with a hat rimmed with gold, bandolier, and serious attitude. The British are highly motivated to track her down, so she's now attracting more columns to the southern free state. Nevote has tried already to suggest that she return to some kind of safety in a town, but Sarah refused to listen, as she knew it would be straight to a concentration camp, which she dreads. Nevote was also threading his way through thousands of British troops, and the going became increasingly difficult. One night, an elder sat with Sarah as they ate strips of game meat. Ya mein Nifi. Nifi means nephew. Nice is Nichi in Afrikaans, so he's obviously being ironic, referring to her as male. You are still young. Your future lies ahead of you. You can start over again if you have to, but what about we who are older? whose best years lie behind us. Where do we find the courage to start all over again? Tears rolled down his cheeks. The commander was quieter. The fire crackled. One of the men suggested that they sing songs and act out little skits to improve their spirit. Then they slept after Nevoet had ordered two of the younger boers to head off on a scouting mission. He chose two youngsters who were inexperienced and skittish, writes Sarah in her biography. At 2am, a clatter of horses' hooves woke up the commander. It was the youngsters who galloped into the camp looking as though they'd seen a ghost. Opsal, commandant, an armoured train is coming this way along the road, and it has a terribly big red eye. Nevoet went to check for himself, but there was no sign of the train. Something had spooked the scouts. They were seeing things. Ten days passed and the men were becoming restless. They wanted to go and fight. When I asked him what we would fight with, as our ammunition was almost finished, the commandant said we would have to capture ammunition from the English. One of the men interrupted, blurting out, You're near, we must go and fight. If the English do take our country, we must at least leave them a few large pools of blood behind. Sarah was riled up and agreed, so early the next morning Nevoet led his men towards a nearby railway line which linked the Free State to the Cape. We've heard how these lines were the principal method of supply for the English, and how the blockhouses had been set up every mile the entire distance. Any attempt at crossing the line usually was met with a flood of bullets. It was an extremely dangerous act. However, they managed to cross and then headed northwesterly, passing to the south of Bloemfontein and reaching the Riet River. It flows into the Moda River, where many battles took place in the first half of this war. It was close to this river where one of their scouts by the name of Yarpi was shot dead by two black English soldiers. This enraged the Boers and led to an act of revenge that Sarah tries to explain away, saying the blacks were not supposed to be fighting in this white man's war. I guess you could ask what a woman was doing fighting a man's war at the same time. The commando coldly tracked down the black soldiers, who were part of a company of English mounted infantry doing reconnaissance. Eventually they found them, the commando took up positions that night overlooking the camp, which was on the banks of the Riet River, based in the middle of thick bush. Early the next morning, they opened fire on the British in the camp. 
By the time the English saw us, bullets were raining down on them. They had been so taken by surprise that they were unable to shoot back, and it was only here and there that an English shot rang out. Sarah joined the rush of Boers down the hill into the camp, determined to revenge Yabi. I stayed bunched with the men and shot left and right. The English abandoned everything, including their weapons. Nivot's charge led to 100 English prisoners. About 70 escaped. But that wasn't the end of the action. Meanwhile, our men were still shooting into the bush, for who knew how many of the enemy may still be lurking there. Commodore Nivot was shouting at those hiding to give themselves up, and one of the Englishmen then emerged from the thicket. However, the Boers were still firing, and he was shot through his forehead and died. When he fell, another soldier rushed out and didn't even concern himself with us. He knelt next to the wounded man, wiping the blood off him with a handkerchief and saying, Oh, I promised mother I'd look after you. What am I to do now? Sarah's empathy was apparent. With that, all my joy disappeared, and I cried with the Englishman. That's a bitter war where bitter tears continued to be shed. They were both so young and looked so innocent, she writes. The Boers took pity on the survivor and didn't shake him down. That means remove all his clothes and boots. Instead, they took his rifle and then allowed him to walk free. Another example of compassion in the midst of carnage. It was the black soldiers the Boers were most interested in. The men who'd shot Yapi were amongst five black troops of the 100 British soldiers they'd captured. Commandant Nivert then told the five black troops the Boers were going to shoot them all in cold blood unless they gave up the two who'd shot Yapi. Two black soldiers stepped forward and said they were responsible. One of the men said it was his bullet that killed the Boer. Remarkable bravery. He knew he'd just delivered his own death sentence, but at least he'd protected his four black brothers. He was taken to a nearby hill and shot out of sight of the Boer woman and the other soldiers. Yes, Yabi had been avenged, but at what cost? It was an execution that was going on all over South Africa. The British were executing Boers, the Boers were executing British, and sometimes both sides were committing what we today would call war crimes. Nebo Tanah made the momentous decision to head back to Boomplas, although the area through which they travelled was crawling with English troops. At night, it looked like a number of towns dotted through the felt. There were lights wherever you looked as if the whole world was on fire, she writes. And we were supposed to go through this? They found an abandoned farmhouse and prepared to rest up. Suddenly a shot rang out. One of the men had entered a room looking for clothes. The room featured a tall mirror. He caught sight of a man approaching him and opened fire. Of course, it was his own reflection. The others heard the shot and stormed into the room and all we saw was that one of the mirrors on the cupboard had been shot to pieces. Skittish, nervous, hunted. The stress of the last few moments evaporated as the men laughed at the silliness. But at least Sarah was close to home now. The Raal boys knew the landscape like the back of their hands, and that night rode with Sarah in their midst in case the British began firing. They would be a shield to some extent. Nivot had broken up his commando for the crossing of the railway line, and she was in a small group of 15 Boers who now did most of their moving at night. Sarah and her brothers wanted to see how their farm was doing, but a large unit of British opened fire on them, and they were forced to flee. It was terrible riding over fences and ditches with bullets whizzing around us. Luckily, it was already dark, and we were soon out of danger, she says nonchalantly. 
She survived a series of firefights. Surely, given the British determination to catch her, it wouldn't be long before she was trapped. Word reached the detachment to join uh, Commandant Levert in Philippopolis. It is regarded as one of the first colonial period settlements in the Free State and the birthplace of the great author Dr. Lawrence van der Post. Then Nevoet rode north with his commander, arriving at Fort Eastmouth two days later, and once again bringing Sarah and her brothers within sight of their family farm. That was too much for her, and she convinced them to take her back to try and salvage clothes that were hidden away close to the farmhouse. They made the momentous decision to ride there the next day. As they passed other farms which were burnt and abandoned, things appeared too quiet on the felt. Something wasn't right. There were signs of battle nearby, carcasses of horses, spent rounds, burnt wagons. That meant both the British and Boers who fought were probably quite close. They all felt ill at ease moving through the dystopian landscape. It was decided to approach the house during the day rather than waiting for night, and that was their second big mistake. They were now approaching their beloved farm flanked on one side by high ground and beginning to move more quickly, which meant they were not scanning threats ahead properly. Between the houses and the ridge was a fairly deep, dry ditch that we had to ride through. When we reached the wall of the ditch, a group of car keys jumped out, and the next thing I knew there were five or six Tommies surrounding each burger. In what was a major anticlimax for Sarah, she'd been captured. The British pulled the Boers from their horses, took their rifles and bandoliers. They approached Sarah. They wanted to hold me from my horse, but I told them to keep their filthy hands away from me, dismounted myself, and walked to my brothers. She was still carrying her rifle, and the English were staring nervously at the weapon, ordering her to hand it over, but didn't dare try to grab it from her. I took my rifle by the barrel and smashed the butt on the rock before handing it over to them. If they only knew how humiliated I felt at being captured, they'd have known that the capture itself was punishment enough for me. The Boers were then shackled together two abreast, but Sarah was left on her own as the company made its way back to a small settlement called Swartkopis. I had no idea until that day how eager they'd been to capture me, for when we arrived at the column they shouted, Caught at last! and threw their hats into the air. More than a thousand British troops were watching this remarkable Boer woman as she was taken into custody. She also discovered what led to their capture. Two members of Nivot's commando had defected to the English the previous day and told them that the famous Boer woman was around. They also knew that Sarah's family farm was nearby, so the British merely headed off to the farm and settled down to wait for their prey. And here she was. Worse, the two had also told the British that Sarah was carrying over 500 pounds in cash and gold. She was made to strip down to her underwear inside a tent, but she managed to squeeze the money out of her dress and hid the envelope between her breasts. The British ordered her to remove her underwear after putting her dress back on. She did so, but still managed to conceal the cash. It was a small victory, but Sarah Ryle was now well and truly captured and had to face the terror of the concentration camps. She became the object of intense scrutiny when eventually she was placed aboard a train heading for a camp. I'll return to what happens to her later in this podcast series, but now we must swing around in a northeasterly direction and head to where General Christian de Wett is based near Heilbronn. He and the British are going into the final phase of this war locked together in an interminable dance across the vast felt, pirouetting and plotting, an embrace that was deadly for all. De Wett based 
most of his previous month's operations in an area northeast of Bloemfontein, close to the Transvaal border. By this time, his commander numbered around 700, large for that time of the war. Remember, even Jan Smuts, who'd made it into the Cape, had fewer than 250 men riding with him at this stage. The English force tracking divet was encamped southeast of Heilbronn, and he was trying to figure out how to attack them before they attacked him. But they were too near to Heilbronn for me to venture on it, he writes. Devet was travelling with Generals Hutting, Vessel Vessels and Mikhail Prinzler when they became aware of the plight of a large Boer lager or wagon train. The women were trying to escape from the British and were heading towards the oft-attacked town called Lindley. Remember, it changed hands constantly, at least 40 times over the course of the war. Devet joined Hutting and Vessels with only 100 men leaving the rest behind as they rushed to see if they could help the women. The British column had 1,000 mounted infantry and were a significant threat to the Boers. It was also led by the highly experienced and successful British commander, Colonel Remington. Prince Lou reached the British first, who were between them and the women. He began attacking Remington's column on their left front. De Vette rounded the British and attacked their forward units on the right. Hutting then attacked the British from the rear. Suddenly, they were being assaulted on three fronts and the commanding officer, Remington, gave the order that the vanguard return to assist in the attack. The English were about to overtake the women, but had to turn around and gallop back to help their comrades. The battle lasted for well over an hour before the British began to advance rapidly towards Hutting, who fell back. He was being peppered by English artillery. They had three guns with them, and of course the Boers had no artillery left. The women made their getaway, but would be trapped in Lindley, which is where the English guessed correctly they were heading. It now began to rain. And a little later, a very heavy thunderstorm burst on our heads. This forced the English to halt on the farm of Victoria Spreit. The torrential downpour stopped the war for a while. And now the sun went down, writes De Vette. His horses were exhausted, the burghers were wet through, so he decided to postpone the attack until the next day. Of course, the new English tactic was to move as much as possible, and they caught the Boers napping, managing to break out that night. Nobody could have foreseen that they would escape that night, he admits. Of course, he didn't realize that the British were now using Boer tactics. The fact that the much-feared Boer General de Vette was about to attack them was a real motivator for Remington to leave the area quickly. They had left behind them five laden wagons and one cart, and where they had crossed the Karoo Spreit, they had very naturally lightened their wagons, and flower, seed, oats and tarpaulins and tents marked the spot where they had crossed the Spreit. And very naturally, De Vette seized the material, being so short of logistic support. The guerrillas were making use of the enemy's supplies constantly in this phase of the war. As I was unable now to get in touch with the enemy, I set off with my commander to what was once the town of Lindley. Alas, it could not any more be called a town. Every house was burnt down, not even the church and personage were spared. Devet wanted to recover from the previous days of fighting and charging and knew that he had some time to build stores. He decided to remain at Lindley as long as possible to give our horses a chance of recovering their condition. Even though the English had left oats behind, it wasn't enough for his 2,000 or so horses and they needed some time resting and eating the fresh green shoots springing up across the felt. We are now into the third year of this war. Huge areas of the country lay silent and fruitless like the desert, and still the British were not masters of the felt. The previous month of guerrilla warfare had cost the British 1,360 men, the Boers 430. The 
The gloom in England was not just because it was the start of winter, but because of a fear the war would never end. Into this tunnel of darkness was to fall the first official report into the concentration camp system, and it would shake the British government to its knees. But that's for next week. We must halt now as Remington and Colonel Baker decide what they're going to do about the vet while he decides what he's going to do about the cape. A quick thank you to Harry, who I met this week. He has a great idea for a future podcast on the bush war in Angola and Namibia and represents the war veterans of South Africa. It's an important topic with many of those involved still alive, including me. Harry has led a few trips to Angola, and a number of trails are planned there to improve tourism, with support from the new government there, now that the former corrupt leader, Eduardo dos Santos, has been vanquished. Very interesting ideas, Harry. Thanks for the coffee and the discussion. Please rate the podcast on iTunes if you have time. You can also email me through the website abwarpodcast.com, or direct message me on Twitter at Des Latham. Until next week, goodbye. Daar onderen die mil is bij die groen door een boom, daar woont mijn sari maar